Good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study this morning in John chapter 3, which I think is a really familiar text. In it, we have Yeshua's conversation with Nicodemus, who was a high-ranking religious leader in Judaism. Nicodemus' unasked question, you know, he didn't really get to ask the question because Yeshua answered it before he could really ask it, but his question would have been, how do, how do I enter the kingdom of God? How does one enter the kingdom? To which Yeshua responds, you have to be born from above. Now, Nicodemus is used to self-effort. He is used to obedience to the law, but Yeshua says he needs a birth from above. He needs a supernatural act of Yahweh to make him fit for the kingdom of God. So the message of our Lord is basically this. You need to be born from above, and that's a work of Yahweh. You don't participate in it. You must have a spiritual heart surgery to take out your stony heart and to give you a heart of flesh. Now, I was reading a Catholic writer last week who asked a question to fellow Catholics. He says, if you were to be asked by a Protestant friend if you have been born again and are saved, how would you answer that? You know, he's prepping them because, you know, Protestants ask these questions to Catholics all the time. So he's like, okay, how do you deal with that? So he tells them how to answer, and here's what he says. He said, you could answer that in the baptism of Jesus Christ, we have been born from above or born again. The double meaning of the Greek word anothen. Though the power of wa- through the power of water and the Spirit into the family of God. In that sense, Catholics have absolutely been born again. This sacrament of our rebirth, our baptism, was our entrance into the new covenant. So he's saying that baptism in water, the sacrament, the Catholic Church views baptism as a sacrament, that is our entrance into the new covenant. And many of us enter that covenant shortly after birth, just as babies of the old covenant entered that covenant as babies. So what he is telling Catholics, and this is Catholic doctrine, he is saying that they are born from above when they get baptized in water. That's the new birth to them. The sacrament of baptism saves them. And I've heard that many times at a Catholic funeral. We know this man is in heaven because he was baptized. This is not what Yeshua is teaching. We are saved by His works, not ours. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whosoever believes will in Him have eternal life. See, Yeshua connects the serpent, which is lifted up on a pole, with His own death at Calvary. When He is lifted up on the cross. And if anyone is to be saved from the penalty of their sins, they need to look to Him for salvation. And all those who look to Him in faith, trusting in Him to remove their judgment of sin, like the Israelites of old, will be saved. He didn't tell them, if you're bitten by a serpent, you need to run to the river, you need to get baptized. No, He said, just look. The look of faith is what saves. Now, You know, I think often we ask, well, why would God give eternal life to anybody who just believed in Him? I mean, why would God not reserve that for for people who kept the rules? You know, why is eternal life given only to those who believe and not to those who really work hard for it? Or why is it given to whoever, like Jews and Gentiles? And he answers it in 3.16, he says, for God so loved the world. He loved the world. 
Now, as I said before, we're not absolutely certain whether these words are the words of Yeshua to Nicodemus, or if Lazarus is adding this later, but either way, it's inspired. We don't have to argue about who wrote it. We know it's written by the Holy Spirit, all right? Now, the construction of the Greek sentence here underscores the intensity of God's love in 3.16. He gave His best, His unique, His beloved Son. The Jews believed that God loved the children of Israel. But Lazarus affirmed that God loved all people regardless of their race. He said He loved the world. Now, when he says He loved the world, it's not talking about common grace here. We know that because He said in the manner in which He loved them is He gave His only begotten Son. That's atonement. Common grace is His love for His creation. That's the love that moves Him to provide sunshine and rain and and all kinds of good things for people who don't know Him and don't care about Him. What he's talking about here is God's electing love, God's regenerating love, God's covenant love. With this love, God does more than offer salvation. He overcomes rebellion and resistance so that the loved ones receive the offer of salvation. You know, people today, and I don't think people ever really like the idea of God making choices independent of their free will. I mean, how dare He? But look at this sovereign love and God's election of the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 10.14 He says, Behold, Yahweh your God, to Yahweh your God, belongeth the heaven and the highest heaven, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did Yahweh set His affection to love them. And He chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. Yahweh didn't just offer to be Israel's covenant God. He chose Israel. He took them from all the people. He didn't negotiate with them. He didn't come and say, you know, I'd really like to be your God. How would you like to be my people? What do you think? Could we work out a deal here? No, He freely and sovereignly and unconditionally chose Israel to be His covenant people. And we see the same language of of God's love in, in raising us up from spiritual death and causing us to be born again. In Ephesians 2, He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love, there's the idea of His love, which with He loved us, even when we were dead, in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So because of His love, He made us alive. So it's God's sovereign quickening, His sovereign quickening love that makes us alive. And when He gives us life, we're able to believe in Him. That's what he says, that whoever believes in Him will not perish. Now, the implication here of shall not perish is that some will perish. Some are going to perish. Shall not perish is an aorist, middle, subjective, subjunctive, and the aorist tense looks to the point in time where this destruction takes place. And the use of the subjunctive mood indicates that the outcome is uncertain. See, if they believe... They won't perish. The perishing is directly related to their response of faith. Now, I said last week that perishing implies annihilation. I just can't see eternal conscious torment and you will perish. Could have used a lot of other things there, you know, to make that more clear if that was it. But there are some who say, well, annihilationism just doesn't fit with some scriptures. And one of them they'll bring out is Daniel 2, verse 2. So let's look at that for a second. Daniel 2, 2. 
Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life and others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So here you have a resurrection of the unbelievers. The resurrection, it's the, of the resurrection of the just and unjust. But to understand what he's talking about, you need to remember that this is in the context of verse 1. At the time of the great tribulation in the end or the last days of Israel, which ended in AD 70. So this resurrection happens after the time of Jerusalem's destruction, not at the time of the end of the world, as most believers think. And most Christians look for the resurrection as a future event, but it was to happen at the end of Israel's days. And at that time, the unjust were raised for judgment. Look at Revelation 20.11. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. The unjust were raised out of Hades. Everyone, believers, unbelievers, everybody went to Hades, awaiting place of the dead, awaiting the resurrection of the dead. At the resurrection, believers were raised out of Hades, brought into the presence of God. Unbelievers were raised out of Hades and thrown in the lake of fire. Revelation 20.14 Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. This death. Death is taken and thrown into the lake of fire. It's destroyed. They don't burn forever in this lake. They burn up and they're gone. They perish. Now since the resurrection and the judgment, when an unbeliever dies today, they simply perish. They don't go to Hades. They're gone. They perish. They die. And death is complete. And it is forever People, you know, that people take the forever language, you know, everlasting death, and it is everlasting. It doesn't end ever. They're dead and they'll always be dead. They're gone. Alright? Let's look at verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. The four here is gar. It, it begins this verse explaining the gave of verse 16. This is God's purpose in sending His Son. He, he loved the world. He sent His Son. The purpose was not to judge the world. That's not why He sent Him. Now look at uh, these two verses here. Notice that the verse, this verse, verse 17 replaces the word gave with the word send. Alright? Same idea. But send has the idea, it assumes pre-existence of the Son. And the fact that Yeshua is from above, He's not of this world. He was sent from above to come to this world. This concept is repeated several times throughout the Gospel. Here Lazarus uses the word cosmos, world. And last week I said that you know if you look up all Lazarus' uses of cosmos, you will see that he uses the term in different senses. Well, in this verse, he uses it three times, and each time has a different sense. He says, for God did not send His Son into the world. This use refers to the part of the habitable world where Yeshua ministered. Yeshua came to that part of the world to minister to those people. He's not referring to the whole world, but to the habitable part of the world that Yeshua came to minister to. And then he says, to judge the world. And here it refers to all men in the world. He came to judge everyone. He didn't come to condemn all because condemnation was not His prime aim. 
He came to save. And then the third occurrence, but that the world might be saved through Him. This is a reference to the elect of God who are living in the world. So He does not fail in saving what he, who He came to save. So Lazarus uses cosmos three times in this verse, and each one contains a different sense. The sense of terms are derived from its usage. You've got to see how does He use that in context. So in this verse, Lazarus further clarified God's purpose in sending His Son by explaining what it was not. It was not to judge the world or condemn mankind. Now the verb rendered judge here, crino, can mean simply to judge, but in this and many other passages in John, the judgment is clearly adverse. Judging, as Lazarus used it here, is the opposite of saving. He didn't come to judge, but to save. So, judging here has the idea of condemning. Thus, the believer is not condemned, and he's not going to be condemned because he came to save them. Now, if you're familiar with Scripture, you may be wondering, well, how can Yeshua or Lazarus, who's ever writing this, who's ever making this comment, how can they make such a statement in light of other verses in the Gospel that clearly say Yeshua came to judge? For example, uh, John 5, 26 and 27, For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment, because He's the Son of Man. So He came to judge. God came to execute judgment. John 5.30 I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And then in chapter 9, He says, And Yeshua said, For judgment I came into the world. That sounds kind of like a direct contradiction of what He's saying in this verse. How do we reconcile these verses with what we see in our text? Well, in John Chapter 5, Yeshua is talking about the judgment that He will execute at the resurrection of the dead. And that's, a, that's the difference. In His first coming, He didn't come to judge. In the second coming, He came to judge. The judgment spoken of John 9 was a secondary duty associated with saving. But saving was Yeshua's primary purpose. Carson points out this. He says, Jesus didn't come into a neutral world in order to save some and condemn others. I think that's significant. Significant. He didn't come in the world that's just neutral. I'm going to save some and judge others. He came into a lost world to save some. In other words, He came into a world where everybody was condemned. And He came to save some. Now notice the similarity of our text to these verses in chapter 12. I have come as light into the world. That's what He's talking about in our text. So that everyone who believes in Me will not remain in darkness. That's the same idea he's talking about here. If anyone hears my saying and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world. Same thing, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my saying has one who judges him. The word I spake is what will judge him at the last day. Again, we see that Yeshua judges at the last day. This is a reference to the second coming, which included the resurrection and the judgment. In John 11, 23 and 24, it says, Yeshua said to her, Your brother shall rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's when the resurrection was to take place. He taught the resurrection would happen on the last day. Well, when is the last day? Well, to the Jews, to who he's writing, 
So he's talking. Time was divided into two great periods. You had the Mosaic Age and you had the Messianic Age. Now, during the Second Temple period, they distinguished between two types of Olam. Olam Hazah, this world. Olam Habah, the world to come. The Olam Hazah, or this world, is characterized, the rabbi said, by darkness, wickedness, sin, and death. And that's what he's talking about in this text. It's called night. But the Olam Habah, or the world to come, as the rabbi said, was known as a time of peace, a time of joy, a time of light, a time of eternity. It was known as day. The rabbis connected the Olam Habah and the resurrection. So he says he did not send his son into the world to judge the world. He didn't come to judge. And when the Jews heard this, they would think, well, that's odd. All right? Because that was opposite of the Jewish thinking, because the Jews believed that when Messiah came, he came to judge, but not them. He came to judge the Gentiles. He came to save them, but judge the Gentiles. So they're really confused, because he says he came to save the world, which included the Gentiles. In verse 18, he says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who believes in Him is not judged. This is the same as 3.16, whoever believes in Him shall not perish. In verse 16, the one believing doesn't perish, but in verse 18, they're not judged. So the difference is, the result of believing and not believing is described in terms of perishing in eternal life, but here, in terms of being condemned or not being condemned. Same thing. He's not judged, he doesn't perish. So they're connected. Same thing. This time the tense, though, of the verbs changes. It's no longer present tense. The time is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense describes the action that took place in the past and which has continuing results. The judgment that is described here took place in the past and it continues forever. Now, there are different usages in the New Testament and specifically in the fourth gospel of the word here, to believe, with the prepositions that follow. Here, Lazarus uses pistuo, plus the preposition ace, or to literally believe into. It means to have confidence in. So when we read, he who believes in him, the reference is to having confidence in, to rely upon him. In what sense? Well, to rely upon him as our deliverer from condemnation. To be saved through reliance upon him. Now what's interesting about this is going back to the Catholic Church for a minute, the Council of Trent, which was a Catholic council, decided this. They said, Cursed is the one who thinks that a person is saved by reliance upon Jesus Christ alone. You can look it up in their doctrine. Okay, You're cursed if you think Jesus alone can save you. And see, but they will tell you, Christ died on the cross for your sins. He died to save you. But... It wasn't enough. You have to add to what he did. You know, and how is that not a slap in the face? He just, you know, he couldn't do it all. You got to help out. You got to do some things. But see, Lazarus is saying that salvation comes to the one who relies on him alone for his atoning sacrifice. He stops relying on anything else. Not his church membership, not his culture, his education, his good works, his observance of the laws. No, he trusts only in Christ for redemption. Christ alone, that's where our hope is found. It has nothing to do with us. 
But they're taking an opposite stance here, and you're cursed if you believe. You trust and only in Him, you're cursed. I think the curse really goes the other way. He says, He who does not believe has been judged already. Now, this is the condemnation of unbelief. And notice it doesn't say, He's going to be condemned. He's already condemned. So that's why when he says he didn't come into the world to judge, because the world's already judged. He came to save some from that judgment. Everybody, this is, you know, we have to get this in our thinking. Everybody born into the world since Adam has been born condemned. We're all under judgment. Paul taught this in Romans 5. He said, therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, Sin entered into the world, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. He says death entered through sin. Through Adam's personal sin, original sin came to all mankind. And all humanity was affected. We're all born in a state of spiritual death. And if a man dies physically, while in a state of spiritual death, he spends eternity separated from Yahweh. He said so death spread to all Men, every human being born is born separated from God, dead in sin. And they're all born in sin, dead because of Adam's personal sin is imputed to them. That is, it's put to the account of every individual in Adam's race. So you were born spiritually dead because you were personally and individually charged with Adam's sin. That's imputation. When Adam sinned, he sinned as our federal Head, our federal representative, Adamson applies to and affects every individual that he's representing. And that's everybody. His act was a representative act, and you and I, being represented by our federal head, participated in the sin. Paul goes on to say in verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Again, talking to Adam, about Adam. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, Adam's sin brought the judgment, and the judgment resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So here we see that Adam's sin resulted in judgment, which is the Greek word krima. Krima means a sentence or a decision on the part of a judge. The judge is making a decision. The sentence from that judge results in Condemnation. Katakrama. Katakrama is defined by Souter in his lexicon as punishment following the sentence. Alright, so because of Adam, punishment, katakrama, fell on every one of us. We are all under the sentence of death. We are all dead. Separated from God. It's a passive formation in the Greek, and it's not likely to refer to the sentence as an edict from the judge, but rather the punishment. The punishment is we're dead. Adam's sin is imputed to all. This is condemnation, which is spiritual death. It is separation from God. Because of Adam, we're dead. Condemnation. Katakrama. Verse 18 says, So then, as through one transgression, again, Adam's sin, There resulted, there again, condemnation to all men. Even so, through the act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Again, this verse we see the same idea. Adam's transgression resulted in katakrama, or spiritual death to all men. 
When Adam sinned, he sinned as our federal representative. It's imputed, put to the account of every individual in his race. Everybody's born dead. They're separated from God when they're born. Romans 5, 12-21 is basically a comparison of two men. Adam and Christ. The comparison is very simple. There are two men. They each performed a single act that brought forth a single result. And the result is experienced by every member in their respective races. And Adam, there's nothing but death and hopelessness. In Christ, there is life and light to all who trust Him. Now, notice what Paul says in Romans 8.1. He says, Now there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Yeshua. Reading this in the original text, the emphasis rests on the word no. There is now therefore no condemnation. That's the emphatic word. There isn't any. And this is the same Greek word. Paul uses this word, katakrama, three times. Two speaking of the judgment that we came under Adam, and now that's what he's talking about here. The judgment, the death that we were under, the sentence of death, there's none in Christ. It's been removed. Adam's sin resulted in con- condemnation, spiritual death, separation from God. But here, the condemnation is removed in Christ. Now, who are those who can lay claim to the no condemnation? See, everybody's under condemnation. Everyone born. Who can lay a claim to the no condemnation? Well, the perimeters here, the promise is only those who are in Christ Yeshua. Only those who are in Christ have life. Some are in Him, and some are not. Paul assumes that everywhere in his writings, there are those in Christ, there are those outside of Christ. Paul's not a universalist. He says explicitly in Romans 9.3, with grief that there are those who are cursed, separated from Christ. And we see in Matthew 25 that there's sheep and there's goats. And if you put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The sheep get eternal life, but the goats get eternal death. And Matthew 25, 46 says, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. Yeshua doesn't love and He didn't die for everyone. When a man or woman believes in the Lord Yeshua the Christ, they are placed into Christ and that becomes their position. And being in Him, they are now free of eternal judgment because the penalty has been paid by a substitute. That is so important that we get that. The penalty is paid. When you get to heaven, you have a right to be there. You don't have to sneak in the back door ashamed like, oh, I know I don't belong here. I'm a really rotten sinner. No, I have a right to be here because all the sin that I committed was paid for in full. And I now possess the righteousness of Christ so I can boldly enter in. If you're in Christ, what happened to Him happened to you. Your union. Your union with Adam, the first man, led to your condemnation and death. Or your union with Yeshua, the second Adam, secured our life and righteousness. So important that we understand our union with Christ. If you understand that, you're not going to get into this thing of thinking, I'm going to lose my salvation. The only way you can lose your salvation is Christ gets kicked out of the Trinity. You're in union with Him. You're one with Him. The Father sees you in Him. You have His righteousness. That's the only righteousness that's accepted in heaven. 
Well, Lazarus goes on to say that he is condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. So the reason for his or her condemnation is what? It's failure to believe. Faith is the instrumental means by which we obtain salvation. And failure to exercise faith in Yeshua will result in condemnation. It will be spiritual death. Just as failure to believe in the brazen serpent in the, for the children of Israel resulted in their physical death. They, they just refused to look to that serpent. In faith, they would die. The same thing here. To believe in His name is to believe everything that Yeshua revealed to us about His person and character. It's to believe that He is the Son of God. That He died for our sins. That He was raised resurrected from the dead and gives eternal life to all who trust in Him. The Bible teaches that by faith, you come into a status that can be defined as no condemnation. Full pardon. Rescue from the curse of the law. Cleared from all guilt. Declared righteous. United with Christ. Guaranteed eternal life. Never to be removed. That's your status, believer. No condemnation. But it's amazing how often the church tries to put people back under condemnation so they can control them, get them to do what they need them to do. We're in Christ, people. That's, you can't get any more righteous than that. In verse 19, he says, This is a judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. See, Lazarus here explains the process of mankind's judgment. He uses chrysis here which is the idea of separating or distinguishing. It's not krima, the sentence or judgment. Even though the light entered the world, people chose the darkness over the light. And when Lazarus here records the light coming into the world, he's speaking of the coming of Yeshua, in whom God God is revealed through Yeshua. Yeshua claimed, I am the light of the world. Men love the darkness rather than the light. This is a major theme in the fourth gospel, the opposition of light and darkness. So these symbols are prominent in the gospels and the teaching of our Lord. They're also, Peter uses them, um, Paul uses them in his epistles. The symbols of light and darkness <coughs> are not new to the New Testament either, they're all throughout the Tanakh. Light's a significant metaphor in scripture. The word light occurs on the very first and very last pages of scripture and 250 times in between. Let me show you a few of them. Let's start in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So here we have darkness is over the earth. It's just dark. 3 and 5, 3 through 5 says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now, the sun and the moon hadn't been created yet, okay? So we got light before the creation of those things. And God saw the light was good. And He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Now, this may seem like a straightforward account of physical realities of light and darkness, but there's much more going on here than this. And if you have studied Genesis, the creation accounts through the ancient Near Eastern context, you know there's a lot more going on here. In the ancient world, The sea and the darkness were synonymous with the gods of chaos and death. So there was darkness over the world. That's chaos. That's death. And in the ancient imagination, darkness was understood to be a problem. 
So the creation of light and the separation of light from darkness in Genesis intends to communicate Yahweh's dominance over the gods of darkness and death and chaos. So there's this chaos. And then Yahweh speaks and fixes it all. At the beginning of the creation account, the earth is dark, it's in disarray, it's formless and void. At the end, it has light and it is ordered. And the progress from darkness to light and from disorder to order. The light was created by God to dispel the darkness. So God creates light as something as an antidote to darkness. Light comes from God. Darkness is a problem that needs to be contained. And it's from here that the prolific concept of light and dark as good and evil are born. God overcomes these gods in creation and brings order into the world. Look at Isaiah 50 verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe is a judgment. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know, we could say that light and darkness are synonyms for good and evil. And we could also say we live in a day when people call good evil and evil good. I mean, it seems like, you know, you can't, some people can't even think, you know, to rationalize what's good and what's evil. You know, people today are proud of their sin. we got movie stars and other celebrities, they go on television and they brag about their immoral behavior. I recently heard a celebrity bragging that she had two abortions. Bragging. I've murdered two children. They brag about that. We have gay pride celebrations and we say, we're proud of our sin. We're proud of what the Bible condemns as evil. We call evil good and we call good evil. In the Psalms, light and darkness are used symbolically. Light becomes a symbol for salvation. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? We see that light is also a symbol for truth. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Light is a symbol of Yahweh's splendor and His presence. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. I think we have the understanding, the idea of the light, the brightness, the luminosity of deity demonstrating itself. As light shines in the darkness, so Yeshua brought the revelation and salvation of God to humanity in its fallen, lost condition. And one's response to the light demonstrates his or her moral or spiritual condition. How do you react to that light? Look at verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light. Why do they? Well, it says they don't come to the light because their fear their deeds will be exposed. It's just like if you turn on the light at night, cockroaches flee. They don't like the light. The same with people who are evil. And the word translated evil here, phalos, it means worthless. They're worthless. The unsaved man doesn't come to light because he doesn't want his evil exposed. Now the word translated here, exposed, means to convict in a court of law. It was used of an attorney proving his case. You know, I found this out as a young Christian the hard way. Have you ever been around unsaved family members or unsaved people and they get mad at you and probably don't say anything to your face, but say something to somebody else about, you're judging us, you're condemning us. And you sit back and you scratch your head and you think, what did I even say? I don't remember saying anything. 
I don't remember, you know, and I, I remember I was so confused because, you know, Kathy's family, why, you're always judging us, you're always condemning us, and I'm like, what, have you said anything? And I said, no, I haven't, have you? No. And so we figured out later how this works, that just your presence, if you love God, you're in the light, and your presence among them condemns them. And they don't like it. You don't have to say a word. They hate the light, and they don't want to be near the light. And you expose the evil of their deeds. I think this verse is talking about moral inability. Moral inability is like a man who owes a great debt that he can't repay. He's responsible to pay that debt, but he doesn't have the ability to do so. That's our position before God prior to the Holy Spirit applying the new birth. We owe a debt, a debt we cannot pay, but we're still responsible for it. In other words, we're required to have faith in Christ. But our love for darkness and our hatred of the light keeps us from doing so. We just are happy in the darkness. We're comfortable there. We hate the light. Now, if it's true, and it is, first class condition, if it's true that no one ever seeks after God, and the Bible teaches that. It's kind of confusing that we have seeker-sensitive churches when no one seeks after God. I'm not sure how that works. And if all turn away from God, then how is it that anybody is saved? I mean, if people hate the light, and they don't want to come to the light, how does anyone ever become a Christian? Well, in this text, as Yeshua said before, you have to have a birth from above. It's only as a person is changed on the inside and given a new birth, they are drawn by the Holy Spirit that they will ever come. Because they don't like the light. Look at what Paul said about us, Christians, being in darkness. In Ephesians 5.8. And you, believers he's talking to, you were formerly darkness. Everybody was. But now, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The verb were here is emphatic. It emphasizes a past condition. This is further verified by the enclitic particle of time Pote, formally, this is our past. We have a dark past. We were in darkness. We see our former condition. If we go back in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're in darkness. You're dead. You were there is emphatic. The emphatic were again. He says, in which you formerly walked. We lived in darkness. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. We were dead. We formerly walked. That's our past. But something drastic happened that changed all that. The text in Ephesians goes on to say, but God made us alive. Paul put it this way to the Colossians. He rescued us, Christians, from the domain of darkness, because that's the domain we lived in. And He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. He moved us out of darkness into the light. Because apart from Christ, we were darkness. He says, but now you are light in the Lord. A contrast is seen here both by the adversative conjunction, but day, and by the adverb of time, noon, or now, We were darkness. That was our condition. Everybody's. But now, we're light in the Lord. How did this happen? How did darkness become light? He says, in the Lord. It's a prepositional truth 
that doesn't fluctuate with our performance. The one doctrine I hope you really grasp is the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. That it's through faith the one who trusts Christ is actually joined to Him. And whatever is true of Christ is true of us. Righteousness, sonship, He's a Son of God. We are a Son of God. Seated in the heavenlies. New life. Whatever was belonging to the believer before being in Christ, sin, condemnation, death, has been transferred to Christ on the cross. Well, Lazarus finished up this section by saying, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. Now, this verse is describing the characteristics of believers. They practice the truth. They come to the light. So they don't care about their deeds being manifest. They want them to be manifest. He's not afraid to come to the light because he's not going to be condemned. On the contrary, it will be demonstrated in the light that those deeds have been wrought in God. Because Paul says we are light in the Lord. He practices the truth. This is a Semitic expression which means to act faithfully or honorably. Carson says truth is an important concept for Lazarus who uses the word 25 times in his Gospel, 20 times in this epistle. Truth is embodied in Yeshua the Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is truth. Now, I thought it interesting that John Calvin commenting on this verse, the the beginning part of the verse where he says, for he who practices the truth comes to light. Now, it makes it sound like, you know, you're doing pretty good, you're you're practicing truth, so because you're such a good person, you come to the light. It kind of sounds confusing. Calvin says this, but he who doeth truth, This appears to be an improper and absurd statement. It does appear that way. Unless you choose to admit that some are upright and true before they have been renewed by the Spirit of God. And you don't want to come to that conclusion, which he does not at all agree with the uniform doctrine of Scripture. For we know that faith is the root from which the fruit of good works spring. It comes from your good. So he who practices the truth... They're practicing the truth because they have been brought there by Yahweh. So that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. Westcott says this, This strange expression makes it clear that the lover of light is not some intrinsically superior person. If he or she enjoys the light, it is because all that has been performed, for which there is no shame or conviction, has been done through God by His power. Alright? So that's the whole deal. They come to God because He has drawn them to Him. He has transferred them out of the kingdom of darkness. This verse doesn't tell us how one moves from darkness to light. It doesn't tell us how one becomes a Christian. But simply focus on the fundamental distinction that is made between believers and unbelievers. Unbelievers love the darkness. Believers love the light. One fundamental difference between believers and unbelievers, it's their attitude towards the light. What do they think of the light? Now this whole section, verses 8-21, through validates Yeshua's statements of verses 1-8, through demonstrating that indeed one must be born from above by the Spirit 
in order to see or enter the kingdom of God. You, you don't get this. You're going to be a lover of darkness. You're going to stay a lover of darkness unless God does something. Left to ourselves, we're perishing. We're condemned. We hate the light. We love the darkness. We don't want our rebellion exposed. Only the gracious, regenerating action of the Spirit of God can change that. Only God can change it. John Piper sums up this text this way. I think he did a good job. He says, The coming of Jesus into the world clarifies that unbelief is our fault. That's what the Bible teaches. All right, We're held responsible for our unbelief. And belief is God's gift. I think we agree with that. Which means that if we do not come to Christ, but rather perish eternally, we magnify God's justice. You see that? God is glorified through people perishing because His justice is on display. That is one of His attributes. He is just. He is righteous. Therefore, it is right for Him to punish sin. We don't like that attribute. we got attributes of God we like. We like His love. We like His grace. We love His mercy. We love all those attributes. But we think, you know, these other attributes, God doesn't really have them anymore. Like, He changed. No. He is justice. And His, his justice is magnified when He punishes sin. And He goes on to say, if we do come to Christ and gain eternal life, we magnify God's grace. But it's all of God. Salvation is totally and completely a work of God. And until we are born from above, we love darkness and we hate the light. And when we come to a position where we love the light, it's because God has worked in our hearts. He has done something. He has changed us. He has overcome our resistance. He's taken out the stony heart and He's given us a heart of flesh and He's brought us into the kingdom of God. It's all His doing. And we magnify as believers His grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I thank You for the truth that salvation is Your work. Lord, if You left anything, any part of it in our hands, we would certainly mess it up. And Father, I'm thankful that the Catholics are wrong. And we don't need to add anything to what You have provided. Your grace is complete. It is full. Thank You, Lord, for loving us for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear Son, a kingdom of light and righteousness. We thank you for your grace. Amen.